Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and mold them and shape them according to your purposes. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So what can we learn from the transfiguration? That's the question. What can we learn from the transfiguration? It's a central event in Jesus' life, and it's also a central event in the church's calendar. In fact, you get it every year on the last Sunday before Lent starts, no matter what, and you get it in August every year. And I have a terrible problem as a preacher because you're already over-familiar with the text, but I'm going to try anyway. So if you'd be kind enough to turn to Matthew 17, let's see what's going on in this great and magnificent and terribly important scene, which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so that we all remember it. And those who were there definitely never forgot it. I want to make two simple observations about the passage. The first is it's about a glimpse of glory, and the second is it's about a command to continue to listen. So a glimpse of glory and a command to continue to listen. If you got your text in front of me, in front of you, let's take them one in their turn. It's a very important scene. It's a scene that gets at the fact that as Christians, we have a faith where the ordinary is suffused by the extraordinary. When Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing, they don't think that they're writing anything extraordinary and they're writing Gospels. When Peter and James and John on this particular day are headed up the mountain, if you interview them on the way up the mountain or even when they got to the very top at the beginning of the scene and said, this is going to be one of the most significant days of your life, they would not have known that. Most extraordinary days in our lives, most of us have about four or five of them. They don't start that way. They almost never do. When Lewis is writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, part of what he's trying to get across with that image of the wardrobe is it's just an ordinary wardrobe in an English house. But you go through the back of it and you get a whole other world, which means what? An apparently ordinary wardrobe is nothing less than a window to an entire other world. And that's what this is about. It's about the collision between the extraordinary and the ordinary. And boy, is it impressive. Look at your text. The passage is at strains to get us to understand that this is about the glory of God. That word glory means weight. In the Old Testament, it's a word that's used first to describe somebody's riches because back in Abraham's day, how much you had had to do with how much stuff you had and how much it weighed. So when Abraham's caravan starts off in Genesis 12, he's got lots of asses and they're saddled with various things and they weigh something. So you would say somebody weighs a lot, which means they had a lot of wealth. But then it came metaphorically to mean the weight of somebody's character. And you and I still use it in the sense of that person is a weighty person. I told some of you before when I got a telephone call once, the woman said, please hold for the governor. And I didn't even have a chance to catch my breath, and I was on the phone with Mark Sanford. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I was still sucking wind. You know, it just changes. I mean, the, the point is, when you hear an office like president or governor or mayor or something, you just change because there's a certain weight. It's not an ordinary conversation. First thing I'm thinking is, why is the governor calling me? Second thing I'm thinking is, what did I do wrong, right? We, right? But, but the point is, it, there's a weight. So this passage is about the revelation for just a moment of the real weight of God's 
character in his son, Jesus Christ, and it's awesome. Look at the passage. First of all, verse 2, it says he's transfigured. That word is metamorphosis. You and I still use metamorphosis. We're in the early children's education period or one of the Sunday school classes, and you take that caterpillar, and it turns into a pupa, and holy cow, it goes into a butterfly. Wow! It's a change of form, which means that Jesus literally changed form. He went from whatever he was before to something spectacularly, nearly divinely, totally butterfly-like. Wow! And just in case we miss it, his face shines like the sun, right, where we can't even look into it without blinding ourselves if we spend too long looking at it. So his face shines that brightly. His clothes become dazzling white, as if that isn't enough. He's having a conversation with who? Moses and Elijah. Oh, we get those guys, law and prophets. Okay. And then there's a voice that comes. We'll lay Peter to one side. You remember Peter, right? He has a tendency to shoot from the lip. Right? I mean, that's, he's always doing this, right? Oh, Lord, it's good that we're here. You know, what, what, a, what a mockery of a mess up in the middle of the scene. Oh, it's good we're here. All focused on himself and the other people and what they can get out of it, and he's a mess. Anyway, we'll lay him to one side. But the voice says something different in this passage compared to what it says the baptism, but they're juxtaposed on purpose, right? So up out of the water in the baptism, it's a Trinitarian scene. The spirit descends like a dove. You remember it. The sun comes up out of the water. The spirit comes down, and the voice of the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what the voice said in Matthew 3 at the baptism. Now we're in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration, and the voice says something different, which is what? Can present imperative I translated it deliberately this way when I read it. Continue to listen to him. From this point forward, don't ever stop every single moment of your life, every single day. Continue to listen to him. Not done yet. Look at the disciples' reaction. Oh, business as usual. On the contrary, brothers and sisters, look at the passage. and Look at what it says in verse 7. They're terrified. I got the wrong verse. Did I get it right? When the, I'm sorry, verse 6. My, my apologies. I said 7. I'm looking at my text. What I mean is verse 6. That word terrified means to be fearful, to be afraid, to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm, to be seized with alarm because you fear nearly immediate harm or injury. It's bodily terror. It's used in Matthew 14. You remember this scene when they're in the boat. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. If you remember, the waters are rough. They can't see. And there's this figure that comes walking on the water like a ghost. And it says this word, and they were terrified. It's not safe. They're not relaxed. They weren't ready. Whatever else it is, it's awesome. Here's the late great Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. The corner of the veil was lifted up to show them their master's true dignity. They were taught that if he did not yet appear to the world in the semblance of a king, it was only because the time for putting on his royal apparel had not yet come. It was impossible to draw any other conclusion than what Peter would say later in 2 Peter about this event. Quote, listen, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
This is an event about the revelation of the glory of God. This is the awesome God, the terrifying God, the God of the mountain, the God you heard in the Old Testament reading. He's very, very much his own person, and if anything's true, and this has to be true, he's not safe. Back to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You already know, but I'm still going to quote it to you because it's such good theology. When the children first hear having tea at the beaver's house about this great lion, Aslan, they get concerned. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And then, just in case we missed it, the most discerning of the children, Lucy says, and I quote, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Boom. That's the theology in one story. He's not safe, but he's good. He doesn't work according to our timetable and our expectations. He can turn any ordinary day into an extraordinary day in an instant. He's the glorious king, the one who made heaven and earth, who knows us better than we know ourselves. Do we know that? Do we live that? Do we expect that? Do we see that? I'll come back to it later. Point number one, there's a glimpse of glory. Everybody with me so far? Point number two, there's a call to listen. And I want to make sure that we get this with the full force that it's intended because it's strategically placed right on the eve of Lent every year for a reason. That voice is the same thing at the baptism except the listen to him, which is translated listen to him, but you heard how I read it. Present continuous imperative. Continue to listen to him. Why is that significant? Two reasons. One is, for sure, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus, but Jesus is greater. So Christ is far above either one. He's the true son. They're the planets who are far below Christ. So there's a sense of the uh, regalness of the one. So one of my favorite images in all of scriptural study is uh, from Judaism, and it says, you should study the Bible as if Moses brought the tablets down to you from the mountain and presented them to you. It's a beautiful image. Just think about that. Before you get to the text, just think about what it would mean if Moses, with his face shining, came down and gave you the tablets. How would you receive them? What would you do with them? You'd just say, oh, well, it's just an ordinary day. You know, time to feed the cat. No, that's not what you do. You wouldn't do that. And so the, the point is, Moses and Elijah are there, and he's above them, so superior to the law and the prophets, fulfilling the law and the prophets. So his they're really important to listen to. He's even more important to listen to. That's point one. Point two is where it comes in Matthew's gospel, which is the 17th chapter, and it comes after the 16th chapter. Now, in the 16th chapter, in Caesarea Philippi, we have that famous story where there's all these gods because it's the summer home of Herod the Great, and there's statues as far as the eye can see, and Jesus says, you remember it? 
who do men say that I am? And they say, some say Elijah, some say Moses, some say John the Baptist. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yeah, get that right. And then he says, I'm gonna, I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to die. And you remember what Peter does? Good old Peter, shooting from the lip again. Here he comes, right? What does he say? Not on your life right? Remember? At which point Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's the preceding chapter. Now what's going on in the preceding chapter? Notice carefully, Peter is talking to Jesus. Hello, Peter. Let's get oriented in terms of discipleship. It's not you talking to Jesus, telling him what to do. Hello. It's him talking to you, telling you what to do. It's an entire inversion of that scene, deliberately, especially for Peter, although also for the other two. Stop shooting from the lip. Continue to listen to him. My dad grew up in New York City, so you get a New York story about listening. Really interesting story, this. Dana Visneski tells the story of a Native American and his friend, who were in downtown New York City walking near Times Square. If you've ever been there, it's crazy busy all the time, unless it's COVID, which we're laying to one side. So it's noon, the streets are filled with people, the cars are honking their horns, taxi cabs are squealing around corners, sirens are wailing, the sounds of the city, as he describes it, are almost deafening. Suddenly, the Native American says this, I hear a cricket. His friend says, what? You must be crazy. You couldn't possibly hear a cricket in all this noise. No, I'm sure of it, I heard a cricket. That's crazy, said the friend. Then the Native American quietly listens, pauses for a moment, walks across the street, and there's a big cement planter, and in front of the cement planter there's some shrubs. He looks into the shrubs, reaches down with his hand, and sure enough, picks up a small cricket. Brings it back to his friend, who's amazed. That's incredible. He says, you must have superhuman ears. No, said the Native American. My ears are different from yours. It depends on what you're listening for. But that can't be, said the friend. I could never hear a cricket in all this. Yes, it's true, he said. It depends on what's really important to you. Here, let me show you. So he reaches into his pocket, grabs a bunch of coins, throws them down on the ground, and in every single direction, 20 people deep, everybody stops and turns around. And the Native American says to him, see what I mean? It all depends on what's important to you. Hmm. It all depends on what's important to you. Continue to listen to him. I told you before the busy story of Charles Swindoll when he's super burnout and fried and he's being mean to his family and everybody's rushing because he's rushing and he's, he's at dinner and his daughter's finally so frustrated with how his dad, her dad has always never got enough time. She says, Daddy, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you really fast. And he, and he says, he gets frustrated by that. And he says, Honey, you can tell me. And you don't have to tell me really fast. And then he says this. I'll never forget her answer. Then listen slowly, Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, listen. It's not easy to listen. To really listen. To really drink something in. To drink something in. Right? George Marshall's diary, do you remember this? Formula for handling people. Listen first. Listen to the other person's story first. Listen to the other person's full story first. That's his three principles for handling people. Notice how he says it. Listen first. Listen to the other person's story first. Listen to the other person's story fully first. 
So that's the plea. Continue to listen to him. And it's no accident that they go down the mountain, were sent into Lent with this continue to listen to him command every year. It's deliberate. Nothing is more important than listening to Jesus. So what have I said? I've said two things. I've said a glimpse of glory and a command to continue to listen. Y'all with me so far? All right, now I go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. But I have bad news for you. Um, There's going to be an extraordinary amount of meddling today. So gear up. Question number one. Are we worshiping the disturbing, glorious God who cannot be tamed? Or turning the question around and asking it differently, and I think we have to ask ourselves this directly, in what ways are we playing it safe and seeking to domesticate the Lord? Susan Howitch, who may be known to you, sold 20 million plus books, was a massive success. Her books were sold at supermarket checkout counters. She reaches her 30s, she's got multiple millions of dollars, she's got houses around the world, and all of a sudden, things start going wrong. Her marriage falls apart, and to her utter horror, this is when the bottom really drops out, her daughter, when her husband moves to America, says to her mom, I don't want to live with you anymore, I'm going to live with him. Very, very successful, very, very wealthy, best-selling author. It all goes wrong. Here's her description of what happened next. God seized me by the scruff of the neck, slammed me against the nearest wall, and shook me until my teeth rattled. I'm going to read that again. God seized me by the scruff of the neck, slammed me against the nearest wall, and shook me until my teeth rattled. She took a vow of celibacy. She endowed a chair at Cambridge for the relationship between science and Christianity, among many other things. Her life was never the same again. Do you think she met a safe God? Not on your life. She said her teeth rattled. Doesn't sound safe to me. Hmm. So that's the first question. For you as an individual, for you as a family, for you in your work, for you in your prayer life, it has all kinds of implications. Second, what does it mean for us as individuals to continue to listen to him on the path through the cross to glory? Or asking in a different way, what does it mean for us as individuals and as a parish to continue to listen to Jesus this Lent? Don't ever underestimate the importance of listening, brothers and sisters. I was interested to come across a new story about listening this past week that I didn't know. It's about one of the most famous speeches in American history. The I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr., which he gave at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 in the March on Washington. I'm sure you know the speech I'm talking about. It was a sweltering, humid day. There were some 250,000 people that came to hear King on the cause of civil rights and the fight for equality and justice. But what most of us don't know is that the dream part of the speech wasn't in the original text and almost never happened. As King inched toward the climax of the speech, he seemed to hesitate. He'd actually been playing around. Part of the reason I like this story is as a preacher, I do this sometimes. He'd been playing around with various versions, and he had this dream thing, and he kind of played with it before. And behind him was Mahalia Jackson. Yes, Mahalia Jackson, she of great gospel singing fame. He's getting to the climax of the speech, and he hesitates, maybe unsure whether his prepared remarks were as inspiring as he hoped. And Mahalia Jackson cries out behind him this. Tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. 
At that point, Clarence Jones, one of King's closest advisors, leaned over to the person next to him and said, these people don't know it, but they're about ready to go to church. The rest, as we know, is history. King had been testing out the dream section at previous events, but when he took Mahalia Jackson's advice, he put the words in and gave voice to the longings of a generation. He described the power of the gospel to create reconciliation, where there previously had been hostility and tension. The author of this article writes this, I love this little insight into one of the most important moments in American history, not because it lessens King's impact, but rather it enlarges it. It also speaks to the genius and boldness of Mahalia Jackson, willing, in one of the biggest moments of her life, to speak up with a great idea. But also, he listened. Changed history. Seems important to me. Very, very important. Nothing is more important than listening to your children, listening to your spouse. So, first of all, in what ways are we seeking to tame the untamable God, that's the first question. Second, how are we called to continue to listen to him? And now I go from preaching to really meddling, and then I'm done. So I'm sitting there on Friday, you know, speaking of safe, I felt like it was a fairly safe sermon, so okay. And then all of a sudden, God showed up. So I'm sitting there on Friday morning, and all of a sudden, this kind of came to me, and I thought, you know, dang. And I, I kind of played with it, and I thought, you know, no, it's true. So here's what came to me. I think you can make the argument this is the most important Lent in the recent history of this parish. That just kind of... Now, why, why would I say that? Well, think about it. John Burwell basically came because Bishop Salmon put him here. And then John called his successor Chris, right? Right, so the last two rectors haven't really had a search process. So for one thing, just owning it honestly up front, this parish really hasn't done a search process of any significance and depth for at least something like 25 to 30 years. That's just point one. But point two is, where is the parish in its own history? See, part of the challenge of a period like this is you have to do uh, what they call an AA, uh, an honest assessment of the way things really are. You have to take an honest spiritual inventory. So John Burwell was here, and there was a wide open front door. He was really good at getting people in the church, but there are questions to be asked about whether the back door was too wide open. And when Chris got here, Chris could see that the back door was too wide open, so what Chris did was provide infrastructure and try to get people to put down roots, think life groups, right? Which makes sense. But here's the question, where is the parish now? Where is the parish now? now that we're here. And see, the thing is, if we come to the wrong answer about that question, we're in danger of calling the wrong person or turning it around and putting it in a positive way. If we take the right assessment of ourselves, then we call the right person, which means this. It means we need to dare to ask this question. What would it actually look like if the untamed God had his way with this church and did things that we don't expect? What if the holy God actually showed up like he showed up on the mountain. I shared this with my wife yesterday, and she said, what about that thing happening at that seminary or university? And I said, you mean the Asbury Revival? Anybody following this? Fascinating stuff. So Asbury University in Kentucky, this is about you know, 10 days to two weeks ago, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit showed up. We're not going to go into great detail, but just to give you one professor there's recent description of one aspect of what's going on. 
He says this, most Wednesdays at Asbury University are like any other. Sounds like the mountain. Just a journey up the mountain. A few minutes before 10, students gather in Hughes Auditorium for chapel. Students are required to attend a certain number of chapels each semester, so they show up as a matter of routine. But this past Wednesday was different. After the benediction, the choir began to sing a final chorus, and then something happened which defies easy description. The students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be quiet, but a powerful sense of transcendence. They did not want to go. They refused to go. They stayed and continued to worship. Next line, listen. They are still there. I teach theology across the street at Asbury Theological Seminary. And when I heard what was happening, I decided to go to chapel to see for myself. When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying for themselves and for their neighbors and for our world, expressing repentance and contrition for sin, interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. Who knew? Most Americans haven't ever heard of Asbury University. Most of us don't pay much attention to Kentucky. When the Holy Spirit has his way, he, he what is it Jesus says in John 3? He blows where he wills. So there you have it. But see, it's an important question to ask. What, what she's asking me to ask you is this. What if there were Asbury Seminary-like outbreak at this parish? And what if the call of the next person is crucial and strategic in having that outbreak? And what if the Lent before that call, where we all listen and we all pray and we all examine ourselves, is to hear the Lord about the exact shape of that call? Are you with me? That, it seems to me, is an absolutely massively vital question for this parish. So I give you a glimpse of glory, the great and awesome God. He's not safe, but he's good. Continue to listen to him. In Jesus' name.